Welcome to the More Equity Podcast by Harlem Capital. Harlem Capital is a diversity-focused early-stage venture capital firm based in New York City. We're on a mission to invest in a thousand diverse founders over the next 20 years. This season, managing partners Henri Pierre Jacques and Jared Tingle sit down with Harlem Capital's limited partners, the investors who help bring the firm to life. Tune in as we share stories and insights on navigating the VC fundraising landscape, from pitching fund strategy to building relationships with LPs and successfully raising capital. In today's episode, we speak with Josh Koppelman, co-founder and partner at First Round Capital, an early stage venture capital firm. Prior to creating First Round, Josh has been an active entrepreneur and investor in the internet industry since its commercialization, founding three companies, all with successful acquisitions or IPOs. Josh not only serves as an LP for Harlem Capital, but also as a mentor, using his experience as a fellow GP to provide insight and clarity on the journey to building a successful fund. Tune in as Henri and Josh discuss the logistics of being a general partner, from the mechanics of evolving your fund strategy to managing ownership and evaluating liquidity opportunities. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Harlem Capital Marketing Podcast. We're super excited to have you on this limited partner series. So, of course, I know who you are, but I'll start and give a brief bio intro for, for the audience to know who you are. Josh Koppelman is a co-founder and partner at First Round Capital, seed stage venture capital firm. Josh has been an active entrepreneur and investor in the internet industry since its commercialization. In 1992, where he was a student at Wharton, he co-founded Infonautics Corporation and took it public on the NASDAQ Stock Exchange in 1996. Josh quickly followed up building two more companies, Half.com and Turn Tide, which were acquired by eBay and Symantec. In 2004, Josh co-founded First Round Capital on a mission to reinvent seed stage. Since then, he's invested in 300 startups. Uh, random fact, Josh also has 16 U.S. patents for his work in internet technology, as well as an avid angel investor. Quite the background, Josh. Any, anything we missed that wouldn't be on your, uh, your homepage? Uh, we didn't talk about things outside of work, but in terms of work, I think you covered it. What's the key things outside of work you like to share? I'd say, you know, besides for my family, which I tend to keep private, I'd say right now, one of the projects that's taking up a fair amount of my time is I'm chairman of the board of the Philadelphia Inquirer. It's the largest nonprofit owned newspaper in the country. And, you know, having spent the first 25 years of my career trying to figure out how to leverage the power of technology and new distribution models to attack monopolistic, slow-moving legacy companies, I feel like there's a certain responsibility to, to <laughs> and a certain amount of karma as well to be chairman of the board of a, a, of a local newspaper, which is an industry that's under attack by modern distribution capabilities and technologies. Yeah, that's super fascinating. I like that. Appreciate you sharing. So we like to start the podcast with kind of where the relationship began. Do you, I'm curious from your perspective, do you remember like how we were introduced in the, in the first time we met? Yeah, I think we were introduced because the dorm room fund, our dorm room fund had first invested in you. Was that, that was right? Yeah, like, wasn't correct. that, yeah. that was like, I think dorm room fund might've been one of your first outside institutions. One of our first checks, yep. Yep. Um, and, and so I heard nothing but good things and you were going out to raise, I think what would have been that first institutional fund. And 
I think we just started jamming on fun models and, and war stories and things at that point in time. I, I remember that meeting where you guys were telling me the, the vision, the goal, and the strategy of the fund. And it's pretty cool to see how remarkably either accurate you were at calling it or persist relentlessly persistent <laughs> to will it to existence because sort of you know harlem capital today i'd say really rep it matches a lot of that vision you told me in that first meeting yeah and, and that that was so, so alex immerman who is our hbs classmate pushed for us to get dorm room fund because i think i don't think dorm room fund had invested like in a fund into that you were the point. first fund that dorm room fund had invested in yeah, and I, and I remember Jared being like, are we, like dorm room fund had like 17 students, which was like the entire Boston around the table. And Jared was kind of mad at me because he was like, why are we doing this massive pitch for $20,000? And I was like, trust <laughs> me, at some point it'll be worth it. And I think, you know, the biggest, the biggest impact, honestly, a dorm room fund was getting you and, and Rob Hayes as LPs because you guys have been super value additive, um, just, you know, speak to the power of the network. And my next question was kind of around that first pitch, because I remember vividly when we took the train to Philadelphia, what from that first pitch, like any things that stood out for you? Because I remember some feedback we got. We didn't think you were going to invest. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that I remember I remember pushing on the fund model, you know, ownership versus access. But I think what really stood out for me was the clarity of the, the vision and the your reason for existing. I see so many funds. Uh, like the world doesn't need another venture fund in general it's not like there's like people are screaming if only there was one more venture fund the entrepreneurial silicon valley and tech industry would be okay so in general i think that given how many seed stage funds there are you really need to have a unique point of view or a unique reason for existence and the two of you really really eloquently and shrewdly i'd say captured your reason for existence and the, and the hole in the market. And you were right. I, I remember, so we have this page on our investment criteria, which has seven, seven like criteria. I remember we were sitting across and you crossed off $100,000 of revenue, uh, HCP value add, and then attractive valuation. And that was the moment me and Jared looked at each other and were like, oh, he's not investing. <laughs> but it was, it was I, I, I love that approach of, you know, we always tell people like, similar to, to VCs, like when you invest in founders, you still have risk or you still think there are whatever issues or concerns, but you just believe the return outweighs the risk, right? And so I think to your, to your point, like I really appreciated you giving us really blunt feedback of like, I don't, I think you should be the first call. You shouldn't have any revenue, you know, hurdle. I don't think you should only invest in founders that need value add because the best founders often don't. And valuation really is just a pricing mechanism. And I remember like those words so explicitly and really all those things have come to fruition because now we invest in pre-revenue, pre-product businesses. We don't care if we add value and valuations you know, have gone up uh, for us partially because of the market and partially because we just want to invest in better founders. <laughs> yeah, look, it's hard because I also find that you know, first-time managers feel like they need to set, they need to be like, we need to set criteria and we need to have, and, and so we want to be thoughtful and systemic about how we approach things, we want to be process driven, and as a result, sometimes I find that the original, the initial constraints that that first time fund managers set might be a little too narrow and limiting for what they want to do. So, I think I think the other four that you had, you stuck with though, yeah. We we have. <laughs> <laughs>
um, to, to that point of like evolution, because I mean, we're, we're on fun too, and we've seen how much we've changed. And, and we like to say we'd rather be correct and consistent. And like we want LPs who whether us be correct and consistent, you know, even though we try to be as close as to what we say we are. What has changed for you? I think you're on fun eight now. Like, and obviously over that decade or 15 years, the market has changed dramatically. Like, what are like some of the biggest things you've seen change from fun one to fun eight? Oh, I mean, we were very focused initially on the size of the check we wrote rather than the percent of the company we own. I'd say we were able, we had the luxury in our first five years to get to know founders over an extended period of time before, you know, I, I think it was not a typical for the first five years for us to be able to spend a couple of months getting to know a founder and an idea. That sounds um, lovely. <laughs> it does sound lovely. Um, and now I look back at that and, uh, you know, it, there, are, there, there are plenty of companies that we fund inside of a week or that we commit to inside of a week now. So we've had to really change our processes. We have partner meetings twice a week instead of once a week. And, and all types of things to make sure that we could be responsive to the needs of the founders and the, the needs of the market. We are players in a market and we need to make sure that we evolve our way of operating, our value proposition, and we put a product in the market and we need to evolve our product to make sure that it continues to appeal to the top founders. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think to that point of like, the evolving. So I guess taking a step back, so you're an LP in Harlem Capital personally, and then also through First Close Partners. Can you give the listeners just like an overview of what First Close Partners is? Sure. So First Close Partners is a fund to fund. It was created by Ed and Betsy Zimmerman, Patricia from ACRU and Regina Benjamin. And it's basically a fund of funds that, that backs venture funds owned by underrepresented managers, especially to help them get to the first close, because that first close is always the hardest. <laughs> um, what we've found is that by doing a level of diligence and by committing early, first close gets reached out to oftentimes by a lot of other institutional managers who are considering investing in funds afterwards and our ability to provide a level of diligence and, and connectivity has been very helpful in not only sort of completing the first close, but in getting LPs into the second. Um, in general, it doesn't require a warm intro of your manager. We review and take seriously any submissions from our website. And it's not just US-based, it's European funds, African funds as well. And to date- awesome. And to date, I think First Close has now invested or committed to well over 75 wow. um, venture funds, all started by emerging underrepresented managers. That's awesome. And I mean, you, you spend most of your day picking founders. I know often you say you're biased towards action for founders. Like what are the biases for you for emerging managers that kind of spot out strong potential? So... I'll talk about myself personally, because I've been, you know, I, I, through my family office, I've invested in dozens of funds. You know, I'll let Ed, Betsy, and Carolina represent First <laughs> Close and what they look for. I truly believe that a fund needs a reason to exist. And so oftentimes, the funds that I have the hardest time is when I feel like someone is solving for his or her need. Like, I want to be a VC, therefore I'm going to create a fund rather than a market need or an opportunity 
or so I view kind of investing in funds kind of like investing in startups. What is that secret that the founders have? What is the hole in the market that the founders want to attack? What's their contrarian way of thinking about it? You know, whereas if it's people who just say, yeah, I'm going to raise a fund and, you know, call a lawyer and say, get me one, of, you know, get me the documents and all right, you know, two and 20, I'm off. It, it, <laughs> it's a little bit harder for me. Yeah. Are there any like flags that you get that you see people making mistakes as emerging managers where you're like, oh, you have that, but I'm still not going to invest for this reason? I'd say that most of my investments, most of the first time funds have had some level of scouting experience before, angel investing experience before, um, you know, they, they'd worked at a VC or an accelerator. I, I have a hard time if this is going to be the first time someone has seen a term sheet or negotiated a term sheet before. So most of them personally have had some experience even if it's not with their own capital as a scout or, or as an angel. Yep. That makes sense. I would agree. We have the angel side too. It's hard to, you just learn so much, like to your point of the founder side by action, right? Like there's even, it's funny, like we raised our fund and then we had that conversation with you that December after we closed and we like changed our strategy completely. <laughs> like we are like, okay, we're going to get ownership. And it's like, we had been investing for a year at that point. And it's like, until you're kind of in it, you just, you know, and really I, know. well, you realized it a lot quicker than I did. Like we, we didn't focus on ownership, you know, or we didn't pay attention to ownership for the first five or six years. It was just, we had a core check size. Our check size in fund one was 350,000. Our check size in fund two was 500. And like, you know, we just said, keep the check size, the stand, let the ownership fluctuate. And, and instead, now we've kind of moved to keeping the ownership the same, letting the check size fluctuate based on where it is in the market. And I don't think people realize how hard it is. You know, I like when I work with ma first time managers, sometimes I'll just pull up a Google sheet and, and walk through some of the math, because if you're a $25 million fund and you're writing really small checks and you're not really buying meaningful ownership. If you start with 1% ownership in a company, you'll be lucky to end up with half a percent of ownership. And by definition, just when you do the math, like if you want to have a 3X net fund, that's 25 times three. So that's 75 million. And if you divide that by, you know, half a percent, that's like, I believe that math turns into 15 billion. Is that right? 15? Either either five or 15. Yeah. Hold on. Let me, I'm doing it in my head. So 25 times three is 75 divided by. 3.75 yeah. billion, I think. Yeah. It's billions. Yep. Yep. See what happens when I don't have my spreadsheet in front of me. <laughs> um, it's hilarious because literally my next question was you told us once you don't need to know your strategy if you know your math. Yeah, like, how, how do you do fund math for emerging managers? Because I, I know this is so important for you. I well, I just think that you know what what's crazy to me does, is when I do the math for some. If I'm talking to a, a manager and I say, "All right, how, what's your initial investment? How much are on average you going to own? Are you going to follow on or get diluted? How much will you own at exit?" Oftentimes, I find that like someone with a fifteen million dollar fund has to invest in companies that become that grow to be worth more in total dollar value than like first round does with a 200 and something million dollar fund simply because of just ownership differential. Yep. 
No, I, I remember that that conversation December of 19 vividly because you, you walked us to the map. Our fund was 40 million. Yours was 250. Uh, and you were like, we need the exact same enterprise value. But our fund was investing in 30 companies. You were investing in 60. And it's like, and I have twice as many bets as you to get the same enterprise value. Who's going to win? Right. I think that like that, like one statement. That, made me sound, that makes me sound arrogant. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's, off it's, that way. I'm it's sorry. Arrogant. It was, it was honestly, <laughs> it was what we needed. Cause then like that Christmas break, Jared and I went into the model and like, you can literally see in 2019, our average ownership was two and a half percent. And in 2020, our average ownership was 8.5%. It was like this stark forex change. And like, it was a, it was just a great conversation. We, no, we kept thinking about it. There are reasons to not, there are, there are reasons like, so for example, I'd say the more confident you are in your ability to pick, um, to be a picker as an investor, the more concentrated the portfolio can be, which means you can focus more on ownership. There are also, you know, I have friends who invested early small amounts as angels in Twitter or Uber or company X and Y. And I'll tell you, like if you put $25,000 in Twitter in the first round or $2.5 million in Twitter in the seed round, like the person who put the $2.5 million in the seed round doesn't make his or her logo a hundred times bigger than the person who put in you know, a hundred times less, like put a 1%, the 25,000 on the website, the logos are the same <laughs> so, uh, in terms of size. So there are non-economic reasons to try to make sure you have great companies in your portfolio. But I would tell you that, you know, from an economic perspective, it's really hard if you can't get ownership, like, we had companies that went public at first round in some of our earlier funds that we did fine with, but they should have just been fun makers. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I think about that a lot. And the logo side, I mean, the beauty of the private market is like you, you can invest in things, not just for economic returns. And we thought about that. I think we felt, for us at least, we had enough institutions where we felt if we performed, then we would have the backers. But I do, I have a lot of friends who are also managers, like where the logos do help you get LPs and like that does yes. matter. So you have it to does. So I'm not that. trying to, so I don't want to sell the spreadsheet at the expense of everything else because there are other reasons to invest in a company. Maybe that, maybe you have a relationship with the founder and you can't get the ownership you want, but you want to be supportive of him or her. There are reasons to invest outside of pure spreadsheet. You know, as a GP yourself, for us, we found our most helpful LPs by far to be other GPs such, such as yourself and the Hall of Maniac, et cetera. Like any other things that you kind of bring from your personal GP experience that like helps you support GPs you invest in as an LP? Yeah, I think there's oftentimes, there's a lot of inflection points as first-time managers, right? So you're going to have a company go public or you're going to have tender offers in cut for some of the positions in your companies and how to approach and manage liquidity is like a whole, there could be a podcast on that yeah. on, on, you know, do I just look at my view and the point prediction of the company today? Do I view the company in light of the fund that it's in? There's a whole host of things that come around taking liquidity. You know, and I often find that a lot of the challenges are, there's a lot of one-off things that come up 
when you're trying to advise companies that you don't see often, but like regulators are focusing on a company or an industry. And how do you as an investor, how could you be the best partner to the founders that you have? And so I find it's sort of, there are some key inflection points, either like material events, either positive or negative. And a lot of, it comes sort of years after the first commit, but how to approach liquidity, especially in a market where there's increasing opportunities when we first started first round, it was very easy. You, you know, we bought and then we held and the founder decided when we get liquidity because like, no secondaries. <laughs> there was no secondary. In today's market, that's not the case. Yeah. Now, I've heard from some, some GPs, different philosophies. I think our current approach is like take 10% off every billion dollars, like valuation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I get that. I think our view, you know, first thing we want to try, we typically try to strive to be founder aligned. Um, so we don't want to ever sell stock in competition with the company, right? If the company's fundraising and raising money at X price, we don't want to be out in the market selling it at 5% less. So we don't want to compete with our companies in the capital yeah. markets. Second is we also often look at the founder's posture. If the founder is personally taking money off, it's very different than if they're going all long. I mean, nowadays, founders are getting secondaries at the Series A. <laughs> so it's like... It's insane. It's a it's a good time to be a founder, right? It is. And I, I think the other advantage of, of the GP perspective for you is like you also have LPs, right? So you know how to manage that LP relationship. Any any kind of like best practices you've learned over time for like managing LPs outside of the quarterly updates that most GPs have to do? Yeah, so I, I don't view it as managing LPs. I view it more as just trying to, you know, a, a transparent or a, a strong communication cadence. Um, you know, we've held annual meetings. We've done Zoom quarterly meetings. And for us, I think the, like, the number one thing is try to avoid surprises. Yep. We probably are amongst the more conservative in valuation approaches in, in terms of, you know, if you have a choice of valuation methodologies, we try to make sure that, there's no surprises if, if companies that we're performing aren't. So we're trying to be somewhat conservative because I find that there are some first-time managers who are talking about unrealized returns without realizing that many unrealized returns never get realized. <laughs> um, uh, there was a lot of realizations in there, I guess, but uh, <laughs> you know, you know, so we've been investors in multiple companies that raised money at prices over a billion where the, the final value was less than liquidation preference. Now, fortunately, we've also been in companies that have been valued over a billion where that wasn't the case. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's very tempting when you get a good mark to try to, as a first-time manager, to try to highlight and, and trumpet the mark. But to some degree, if you're running a marathon, the fact that you had a great time through my, in miles two through five, that's great. And like, Chances are like it puts you in a better position to finish the marathon strong, but you still have like 75 plus percent of the marathon left to go. And there are plenty of places for you to sprain your ankle, twist your knee, get dehydrated or get leg cramps along the way. And so I worry that too much celebration at the mile three or mile five, sometimes those things come back to bite you if you're having a tough mile 12 or mile 15. Yep. It was great to have the New York Marathon again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and to that LP point, you know, most of us have LPACs, which is just a, a committee of, of LPs. Do you interact with them any differently than your broader LPs? No, I mean, I think with the smaller group, we're talking a few funds ahead in terms of team composition and, and things that way. Um, in general, though, I think we try to meet with all of our institutional investors at the same level and, and share the same material, regardless of LPAC or not. You know, for us, LPAC is really just to give us advice or to make sure the LP's perspective is heard when you have to make a decision that might touch the LPs. So I think in our 17-year history, we've done one cross-fund investment. So we try not to do cross-fund investments. Yep. Um, but when we do, do a cross-fund investment, we went to our LPAC. And the reason why is because we just wanted to make sure those are always tough because there's always the challenge of hindsight, right? Like if that investment ended up being great, the, the LPs in the first fund might say, wow, why didn't we do all of it in our fund? Like you shouldn't have cross-funded it. And, and if it ended up being crappy, the investors <laughs> in the second fund would be like, why did you stick this with us? You should have kept it in the first fund. So like we recognize that like in hindsight, there's no way that decision might not have the potential of creating some issues. So we just choose to try to, anytime there's one of those type of decisions, we just choose to be very proactive about our communications with our LPs. Yep, no, we take a similar approach. Well, this was super informative, Josh. Really appreciate your time and insights as always and appreciate your support as, a, as an LP and uh, fellow VC. Well, thank you. You guys are doing great. Thanks for having me on and look forward to hearing the other episodes on the podcast. I appreciate it.